0: Hello, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. I just briefly want to explain to those that have never watched any of my messages. By the way, these will also be on iPod audio on my site at loverealize.com. I want to explain how I am about to share. In 1 Peter 4.11, the Word of God says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that is what I will seek to do. That means that I'm not just here to give you a nice message from an outline. I am here to allow the Spirit of God to rise up in me and to carry me beyond myself to speak those words that are coming from the Spirit of God that will impact your life as an individual, that will impact the corporate body of Christ around the world for this particular time and hour. This is called prophetic preaching. It is speaking out of the spirit of prophecy, which involves being in a conscious state of worship. Now, I will qualify that God has also given me a gift of teaching. And often in my messages, I can go into in-depth teaching, which has been given to me by the Spirit of God, the gift of understanding and the Word of God. But then I, at certain times in my messages, will be speaking out of a state of, prophecy more, where it is coming uh, with force and impact on your lives and to the body of Christ. As it says in Revelations 19, when John fell prostrate before the angel, the angel said to him, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, prophecy comes out of worshiping God out of a pure heart and spirit and truth. When we sing, when we get our focus upon a heart of genuine reverence before God and humility and all of who he is, and God begins to animate the eye of our heart to see some aspect of his glory Or of who he is. It is beyond words what we see. We can't put it in words. And so there's no vehicle that can properly express what's in our heart. As that old hymn says, Oh for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And so it comes forth in another language. But also it comes forth in this spirit of prophecy. And as that verse says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What truly testifies of Christ and of the reality of God to us as an individual, as we're hearing a message, is when that word is coming out of the spirit of prophecy. And that is why I do not hardly do anything as far as preparation goes. And also what I do to facilitate this is I cast lots on the scripture almost every day of the week to get a particular chapter in other words there's an equal chance for it to be any chapter in the whole of the bible but because i have faith in the sovereignty of god and because i am walking in holiness before god and not in a life of sin god powerfully works this way so that every time when i get these chapters throughout the week They all dovetail into a particular theme, and sometimes it's not very apparent. And many times these things only come together as I am speaking. But I do meditate for about a half an hour to sometimes only 15 minutes, and that includes the making of notes. And so I want to share what I received this week, because I believe God is wanting to speak to the body of Christ around the world for this particular time. So first of all, I'm going to briefly go through the various passages of Scripture which I received in the last week. And then I will take one of those chapters as the theme chapter and in this case it's going to be Ruth chapter 4. So I will not read Ruth chapter 4 at this time. I will just briefly mention a little sentence I made that sums up Ruth chapter four, and it's this. Those who have allowed long trials, not to wear them out, but have become holy and strong through them, gain in time the great addition of inheritance rather than dying before their time by giving up to be worn out through the trials. Now, the other chapter I received recently, in this particular week, actually was last week, I've had things going on. So that is what I am sharing on from the chapters I received last week. And of course, today is November the 4th. Let me just verify that it's November the 4th. Yes, indeed, it is November the 4th. I also received Song of Solomon, Chapter 5, the next day after receiving Ruth, Chapter 4. And I just made, again, a paragraph, summation of that chapter of what God was showing me through it. The Bride of Christ is preparing for the Bridegroom, but even though there is awakening deep inside individually and corporately in the remnant, the Lord expects a response without delay of sleepiness. This is the sleepiness caused by concerns of this world. Therefore, the Lord withdraws that the remnant might seek him wholeheartedly and cast off all concern out of what others think. In this full love, the bride proclaims the great beauty of who God the head is to the world as to why there is such devoted love to seek him. And then I received after that, Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I made this, I wrote this brief paragraph in summation of that chapter. God requires that we complete, we be completely unsparing towards all forms of idolatry in our lives and the corporate body of Christ. It is when we are enjoying that gratifying blessings of abundance, that the subtle deception of pride can enter in to rob us of such a hate for sin and idolatry that is what consumes all compromise. Those that add to the word of God, like the Pharisees did, or take away from the word of God, do so because of the deception of idolatry, that is self-worship in their heart. Those are the basic chapters that I received last week. Yesterday, I received Deuteronomy chapter nine, but I do not know if I will be sharing from that. It would seem that these chapters have no, no real significant underlying theme or relationship with each other. But that is not the case. Now, there are many that know this account, historical account of Ruth and what happened, but there are many that are watching this video that may not. So I just briefly want to share with you the four chapters of the book of Ruth and what it is about. There was Naomi, which means pleasant, and there was her husband, and her two sons and there was a famine in the land and because there was a famine in the land they decided to leave the land of Israel and to go to Moab because probably conditions were somewhat better there for their survival and so they went to the land of Moab but there was great difficulty that happened her husband died now ruth, now as they were there they befriended two people one whose name was ruth and the other orpha which were Moabites and they became good friends and lived with them because they married their two sons ruth's two sons were married one to ruth and one to orpha now, one of the sons' names was Mahlon, which married Ruth, and the other one was Chilion. Pardon me that we didn't marry Ruth, but married the son of Ruth and Chilion. But as time went on, the two sons died. So now here was Ruth left with the two Moabitists, Moabites, Ruth and Chilion. Pardon me, Orpha, Ruth and Orpha. And there's a very key verse that we read about, a very good and important verse that describes what happened when this was the case, where Ruth was left with no one except two Moabite women. Now, I'm doing this ad lib, so I don't know exactly where the verses are, but I know approximately where they are. And so we read in Ruth chapter 1, after she lost her husband and her two sons, and they lifted up their voice and wept, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 1, again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave under her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or return from falling after thee, for whither thou goest, I will go, and whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried, and the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death, part thee and me. And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left off speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. So they returned to Israel to the t- town of Bethlehem. And as we go on with The account in the book of Ruth. Ruth being a Moabitess. Should have been rejected. Because in the word of God. We will discover. And you can look these verses up for yourself. I didn't. Doing this just without preparation. Look these verses up. But there's. A verse in the word of God. That says no Moabitess is allowed into the house of the Lord for ten generations because of what they did against the children of Israel. Furthermore, it says that they're not to wish their prosperity or to do anything that would help them or prosper them. But here we have the account of Ruth coming back, Ruth being the Moabitess, and she's allowed to work at first had a distance from the others, bringing in wheat. And so we have a story here where eventually, Ruth, because of Boaz, the man that was a man of wealth and strength and honor, that was running the operations of harvesting, she's allowed eventually to work with the others and to receive some of the blessings. And as time goes on, Uh, Naomi, meaning uh, Pleasant, the one who lost her husband and two sons, devises a plan for Ruth to be next to Boaz. And as this happens, there comes a point where Boaz decides to marry Ruth the Moabitess. And Ruth the Moabitess eventually, through various things that happen, which I will read in chapter four, becomes married to Boaz, a far older man, but a man of wealth and strength and prestige. That's the basic outline of what happens in the book of Earth. So having... Describe the background of the book of Ruth. I will now read the theme chapter, chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here, and they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land which was our brother, Amalek. Now Amalek was the wife of Naomi that died in the land of Moab. And I thought to advertise thee saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people, if thou wilt redeem it, redeem it, but if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe, and Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Amalek's, and all that was Chilin's, and Mahalon's of the hand of Naomi. <clears throat> Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Mahalon have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren. And from the gate of his place ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel and do thou worthily in Ephratah, and be famous in Bethlehem, and let thy house be like the house of Phares, whom Tamer bear unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons have borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's King David, the famous prophet king that God brought forth. And these are the generations of Pharaohs. And Pharaohs begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab. And Aminadab begat Nahashon, and Nahashon begat Salomon. And Solomon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David I just want to pray briefly father in heaven. I ask now that you would Come down in your glory and your presence and that you would be magnified that you would be glorified that people would not hear or see anything of myself but that they would be touched in their hearts and lives and that the body of Christ would rise up out of its sleep because of this message in Jesus' name. The first thing I want to point out in this book, in this, in Ruth, is the genuine fear of God That Naomi had after losing her husband and her two sons. She returns to Israel. And she says this when she returns. And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, meaning pleasant. But call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty have dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, meaning pleasant, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? Naomi could have allowed the bitterness in her life to have swallowed her up, so that she was better against God. But rather, she doesn't do that in her trial. She acknowledges that God is sovereign, that God is just and righteous in the judgments that he has allowed in her life. This is an evidence of the true and the genuine fear of God. That doesn't mean that in a trial, we don't have times where we throw a little Tantrums, temper tantrums, and say things out of our emotion that we really didn't mean with our heart or that we shouldn't have said, I have been one that has been guilty of that in trials at certain times in my life. In fact, I felt so condemned when this happened that I was convinced that God had rejected me and that he could never use me again, that I was like King Saul and that someone like King David would take my place, that I was like the children of Israel in the desert that had failed to enter the promised land. And so the enemy brought heavy condemnation on me and my own heart was condemning me heavily, even though right after that, emotional temper tantrum where i said words that i should have never said before god i immediately repented because i had the genuine fear of god in me and overall had an attitude of trust and acknowledgement that god was just and right in what he was allowing but i was so condemned that god had to give me a powerful revelation that i was accepted of him and i've had that happen a number of times in my life in the process of coming out of the deceptions of my own self and ways that was exposed through the trials, my own self-righteousness. One time I went into the church and I couldn't even pray and I didn't even feel worthy to be in the church. I felt totally rejected by God and then the presence of God came down. And filled me with his glory and his presence and I wept profusely because he was showing me and giving me his presence that he was accepting me that he'd heard my cry. He had heard my heart of repentance. Now in this particular book of Ruth, I do believe that God's will for Ruth and her husband and her two sons was not to panic and go to mob, but to trust God through the trial instead of trying to work out things in our own way as we tend all to do. We tend to panic when we face a trial, let's say, where we don't have any source of income and we don't know how we're going to pay our rent or whatever the situation is. Instead of resting and trusting God because we're spending time with God, And maybe it's because we were not spending time with God. Most likely that is the case. Because we got wrapped in the swirl of the concerns of this life. Our heart had become hard and insensitive to God. And as a result, we go out and initiate things out of ourselves to try to work out the problems and the circumstances. When we're facing the Red Sea like Moses and we got the children of Israel prodding us on and saying, where is God now? And how in the world are we we going to be saved when the Egyptians are on our tail? And all there is is a deep and violent sea in front of us. Did Moses panic? No. He learned to trust God, to be still, and to see the salvation of God. When you become still, then you can hear the voice of God. And if you have a relationship with God, that is what will happen. You will be sensitized to the relationship you have with God, so that your tendencies to initiate things and independence of God are not the things that move you, but rather your relationship with God. With total trust that he's able to bring you through those trials. And in this case here, in the book of Ruth, there was a famine. And the result was, because they were probably caught up in the busyness and the concerns of this life, and why did God allow the famine in the first place? The reason God will allow famines in our lives as individuals and corporately in nations and even in bodies of believers, trials and things happening that we just cannot understand that seem to be so unjust. Is because God is trying to get our attention that maybe we are in the web of this world deceived by all the concerns of the immediate things around us, including our own program to have a wonderful and prosperous church. We're filled with busyness and religious activity and have lost our first love. There was another time in which there was a famine. And I want to point that out now. And that is found in Second Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. So I'm just going to do this by um, the way things work out. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 21, we want to read, first of all, verses 1 to 9. Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not the children of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites and the children of Israel had sworn unto them. And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? They were cursing the inheritance of the Lord because they had made a covenant. Israel had made a covenant. They would not do any harm to them. And here they broke it because of what King Saul did. So they were cursing Israel, and it was resulting in this famine because God saw that their cause was righteous. And the Gibeonites said, We will have no silver, nor gold of Saul, nor of his house. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. And they answered the king, the man that has consumed us, and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose, and the king said, I will give them. And I don't think I need to go on and read the rest of those verses, but that's exactly what happened. And then we go to verse 10 to 14, and here's one of the sons, one of the women's is mourning the loss of her son that was hung by the Gibeonites. And we read in verse 10, And Rispa, the daughter of Ahai, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. And it was told David what Rispa the daughter of Ahai, the concubine of Saul had done. This is the bones of one of the dead. Now, I didn't read exactly if this is the one of the sons. It most likely is. And David went and took the bones of Saul. Okay, this is the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the man of Jabez-Gilead, Je- which had stolen them from the street of the Basham, where the Philistines had hanged them. And when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gibeah, and he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged, and the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin in Zeleth, in the sepulcher of Kish's father, and they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. When there is trials in our lives, and God allows famine in our lives, we can do one of two things. We can panic or we can choose to seek God until God reveals the root of why these things are being allowed in our lives. David sought the Lord when there were trials. He didn't withdraw into cocoon with all kinds of bitterness and complaints. But then we have something else. What was it that broke the famine? In the case with King David, once he knew the root of it, it was a price that he had to pay But then there was this lady that was nursing the wounds of her loss, which was represented, you could represent as a form of idolatry. She was nursing these wounds by not allowing the birds to rest on the bones of her sons. God is calling his people to rise up from nursing those things of offense in their lives. It's not necessarily a trial. It can be offense, it can be unforgiveness towards someone that has done us wrong. We may even justify those things and say, oh, we really we, 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 we forgive them, we really forgive them. But you remember this, that if we have come to the place where that wound is really healed and we've given it to God, And we've let go and we've quit focusing on it. If we're feeding it in some way, it's a form of idolatry. And if we've really forgiven someone, we will receive them in fellowship and in genuine love as Christ received us. For the word of God says that we're to receive one another as Christ received us. If we've truly recognized the greatness of God's mercy to us, we will recognize the greatness of his love towards us. And how will we then not be able to, with true humility and love, forgive those that have wronged us? initiate love that might bring repentance in the other person in other words even though that person may be far more in the wrong instead of pointing out their wrong we go to them in humility and we admit our faults which are far less and say to them that we love them and that we choose to have fellowship with them and to forgive them and we admit our faults in humility Because doing that brings them to repentance. And if it doesn't, they would receive greater judgment by resisting the forgiveness in us that we are showing and the mercy in us that we are showing to them. And that's what releases us into a right relationship with God. But when we are in trials, we can nurse the wounds of offense. Offense towards God and offense towards those that may have hurt us. God is calling his people to rise up from these things and be his army in these last days. Now in the book of Ruth, I want to point out the meaning of Boaz. And I brought um, some things to point out the meaning. Um, I have been learning In the Hebrew, the symbolic letters. And the word Boaz, first of all, I want to point out what its meaning is. Boaz means in him is strength. And the symbolic letters which I've memorized and know, I'm showing you them here. That's the modern Hebrew letters. This is the letters that go back between 1500, 2000 B.C. and earlier. And I want to point out what this word Boaz means. The first letter here is the diagram of a tent. And that word means habitation, dwelling, family. The next letter is what is known as a tent peg, and it means to secure, to attach, The next letter is the symbol of an eye, and it means to watch, to know. And the last letter is the symbol of a cutting instrument, and it means weapon, cut, eat, because it's a tool for, a sharp tool for cutting wheat and so on, and also can be used as a weapon, and that's what those letters mean. So what does that give us a picture of of what Boaz means? It means that Boaz is someone that is attached to habitation and watches over habitation and cuts off all that would threaten the comfort of dwelling in the place of dwelling with God because he is the source of all family and with his people. He is one that has come to a place. Boaz did not leave and flee to Moab. He went through the famine and he guarded his relationship of fellowship with God, of habitation with God. He was attached to his relationship of habitation with God and with his people because he was always spending time. As it says in the word of God, we are to watch and pray because we do not know the hour when the Son of Man returns. And so he was in a state of of openness of heart, beholding the glory of God. We know that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter three the last verse, near the last verse, which says, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And it goes on to say, we all with open face, open heart, beholding as in the glass the glory of the Lord are changed from glory to glory, even by the spirit of God. And when we are in trials, If we have this relationship with God, where we have learned to have such a love for who God is, there will be within us such an attachment to dwelling with God and knowing him face to face in our spirit, I'm not talking about open visions here, that there will be within us such a love for what God loves and a hate for what God hates that we will cut off all that would come against the preciousness of habitation with God. And we will go through those trials and be able to hear God in the midst of those trials as to what he is doing at the very core and root of our being. That's what the word Boaz means in the original. If you look it up in the various dictionaries, of course, you have it basically stating in him is strength. And indeed, it entails that meaning in that word. Contrast this with Mahalan, which was the father of Naomi, that decided with Naomi to go with her two sons to the land of Moab. What does the word Mahalan mean? Mahalan. Here is the word Mahalan. I'm going to read basically what those symbols mean. It means chaos that divides and attaches towards what continues in what is degrading or what is good. I can go in now and explain those letters. The first letter is a symbol of water. It means one of the meanings of the symbol of water is chaos. It means also mighty, and there's also other meanings to it, but one of the main meanings is chaos. The next letter, ha, so it's ma, ha, is a tent wall. It speaks of dividing one place from another. It speaks of constructivity, of, of basically dividing. So you've got chaos that causes a dividing. The chaos representing trials. And then the next letter, L, le, is a shepherd's staff that hooks sheep. It means towards. It means to yoke. It means to work. So when there is trials, there is a dividing that causes us to, through it, be yoked. And the next letter is the tent peg again, which means to add and secure. So we're drawn toward, and in being drawn toward, we are attached. The tent peg speaks of attachment. And the last letter is a seed sprout, which speaks of continuance, that this thing is going continually on and on and on. So what do we have in the word mahalan? We have the meaning of chaos that causes division and draws us toward a particular state. That division can draw us in a state that is continually repeating itself in a way that is degrading or in a way that is to life. Now the root meaning of mahalan is this word right here. It ha-ha. It is halaha, basically. The tenth division, towards, resulting in this last symbol, which is the picture of a man. That means to sigh, to breathe, to look, to reveal. It can speak of beauty, but it also can speak of sighing in the sense of being sick. And when we look at what this word mahalan means, in that root, If you look it up in the concordance and so on, the root meaning of that last three letters I showed you says it means to be rubbed or worn. So what we have is an ongoing process. So in trials, people can be brought to the place where they are totally worn. And when you're brought to the place where after repeating the same thing over and over and over again, you are not hearing from God you get to the place where you withdraw into a state of giving up and falling short. And you die spiritually and possibly physically as it was Ill, is, is seen in this case in the book of Ruth. God is wanting us as his people to be those that are truly in a relationship with him where we come into a relationship with him like Ruth. What does Ruth mean? The word Ruth basically means friend. It means friend. It also means satisfied according to the dictionary. scripture proper names. So it has that meaning as well. I don't know where they get that from the dictionary proper names. But I can tell you what the meaning is in the... uh, symbol letters that's the modern this is the ancient the first letter is the picture of a man said, and it means chief or foremost top and then you've got an eye to watch to know so it's a priority in watching or knowing and then there's secure add or hook which is the tent peg so it's a pr- priority and watching or knowing that is secure to the point that it is the last symbol, which is the symbol of the cross, which in the ancient meaning here means signature, seal, symbol. And so that's what the word Ruth means. It is really a strong picture of a friend. It's someone that knows you and makes you the priority and gives themselves in a binding covenant, which is represented in the tent peg, which results in that person being seen as truly standing out, or a symbol, or a sign, like the cross stands out, which is what the symbol means in the ancient letters. So Ruth Ruth means friend. And we see that Ruth came into such a love relationship with God, that she said, as I mentioned that theme verse in chapter one, she said, Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also of aught but death part thee and me. When we come to the place in our lives, sometimes it takes trials to bring us to the place where we finally die to the concerns of this life and become totally alive unto God. The deception of idolatry is like a black hole in outer space or like the electron spinning around the nucleus of an atom They form a hard shell because they're spinning so fast and so hard. And the only thing that can break that hard shell is the ultimate positive and negative. And let me just briefly explain this without getting into detail. The negative represents that aspect of God's love that has such integrity and such purity that it is a consuming fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love. It is the holiness of God, it is the defensive aspect of God that cuts off all that is corrupt. Because God's love is totally pure and has no corruption, he holds unlimited life and power. He holds the highest quality of life that is ever expanding and ever enlarging as time goes on. He holds what is known as eternal life. It is out of the holiness of God that we have wholeness. Because wholeness has no corruption in it. What has corruption in it is like a black hole in outer space. And it brings everything in around it into a destructive state because we are making choices out of the panic of self, out of the deception of idolatry. God is calling us to come to the place where instead of being offended at the holiness of God, that is the integrity of his love, the results of the consequences of suffering in this world because of our own rebellion that we acknowledge, like Naomi, that God is just in the judgments that he's allowing in our lives. There's a verse in the word of God that says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And I believe it's in Jeremiah and it might be in Job. And that is what happened when God himself came in great condescension to suffer more than you, a mere creature, and to humble himself more than you, a mere creature. He hung on the cross and absorbed the sins of humanity. He was the only one that in being tempted in all points as we were, was without sin, and as it were carried the first man, Adam, in whom we as the human race existed and as it were, through his obedience and resisting temptation, took him and nailed him upon the cross so that we could be in Jesus Christ, the new Adam, and why? Because when he was on the cross, he was still in oneness with God because he is God. Yes, he experienced absorbing the judgment of God, absorbing the forsaking of God's presence, but he still maintained his union with the father because his spirit was in a state of selfless trust that was totally pure without corruption. So he said into thy hands, I commend my spirit. He never had a fist of rebellion against the father. He had that spirit of holiness that's talked about in Romans 1.4 that says that Jesus Christ rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. It was the spirit of holiness in him in that state of selfless trust in who God is in his holiness. No, he didn't rebel against the holiness of God. He absorbed that judgment even as Ruth have the same right attitude in the genuine fear of God. And as a result, experience restoration, even though initially she had to go through those trials. God is calling us as his people in these last days to wake up out of our sleep. Because many of us have a heart that is hard, because we have lost the genuine fear of God. We have not perceived his holiness, which is represented in the negative symbol, which represents cutting off all corruption, which represents foundation that is without corruption, that can allow creativity to go on an ever greater enlargement without corruption, that is ultimately manifested in such love in its purity that God would take judgment upon himself for only God could be an atoning sacrifice that is perfect that could absorb the sins of all creation that would repent of their from their rebellion by temptations of the physical realm, rebellion, indirect rebellion through temptations of the physical realm. Now what I am sharing here is also seen in the other chapters that I shared at the introduction of this message. So I just briefly wanna touch on those chapters now. We have Deuteronomy here. Now it isn't Deuteronomy, somehow this switched to Deuteronomy 11, I'll correct that. Deuteronomy 12. Now, I already summed up Deuteronomy. So I'm just going to mention briefly what this chapter is talking about. God is commanding the children of Israel to utterly destroy all the idols of the nations around them. And I should add that the chapter I got after this one, which was Deuteronomy 9, he emphasizes, don't you ever think that it's because of your righteousness that I am destroying these nations around you? He makes it very clear it wasn't because of their righteousness, but because of the evil that these nations were committing. It was like a cancer that would destroy, eventually with its corruption, all things. And so these nations, before the cancer spread, God was using the nation of Israel to bring judgment upon them. But in Deuteronomy 12, he emphasizes how they must not spare but destroy all of these nations with their idols and gods and then he goes on and he starts to talk about the people themselves and their and the danger of them beginning to become like those nations and he says here's the thing you must guard yourself against you must guard yourself against even mentioning the name of their gods. And you must never even inquire out of curiosity as to how these nations worship. That's the kind of purity God is wanting, of separation from those things that are corrupting. And then at the last verse of this chapter, he says that you're not to add to my commandments, and that you're not to take away from them. Now, we know that this is what the Jewish hierarchical system, religious system, began to do. It began to make all kinds of laws around the commandments of God out of fear of not keeping them. What this is, is a deceptive state of idolatry, known as self-righteousness or self-worship where we get our eyes, as it were, on the Ten Commandments and performance before God and make that a priority over our relationship with God, so that the Ten Commandments become the focus and the worship rather than one's relationship with God. That was not what God intended, even in the giving of the Ten Commandments. It was that there should initially be such a reverence and fear of God that brings us to that place of utter dependence upon God that breaks that state of self-righteous religious deception. The Lord is nigh unto those that are of a broken and a contrite heart. And that comes out of the genuine fear of God, which is what births genuine humility that is so essential and necessary to abiding in an intimate relationship with the Creator. And that happens when we recognize the holiness of God is the very source of goodness. It is the very source of wholeness without corruption from which issues forth the very source of beauty and the very source of glory and of all creation. And when we recognize that, how can we not but be on our face and utter reverence before God and still ourselves before God? As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the first verse, Be not hasty to utter anything from before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. We are to curb back our own self-initiations and learn to wait on God until all of that activity, like the spin of electrons around our heart, is broken, ceases, and we sense a brokenness and a softness before God. We become conscious of the greatness of his mercy because we've recognized the greatness of his holiness and of our need of his mercy because of the very thoughts, even if they're not deeds, that are in our heart. The spin of things that are self-worship and the concerns of this life that should never be desensitizing a relationship with God. In the Song of Solomon, we saw, and if you read that chapter in the Song of Solomon that I received by the casting of lots, that is, the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, the bridegroom comes to the bride, and there's an awakening in the bride with great love and desire for the bridegroom. But she's so sleepy, she doesn't respond in time. And so the bridegroom withdraws himself. And this makes the bride desperate to the point that she goes out and is persecuted by the watchman of the city in her desire to find the bridegroom. She becomes so desperate for God. That she's willing to pay any price. And often trials that God allows by withdrawing Himself in our, from our, in our lives, drawing withdrawing His presence as it were from our lives, and it would seem that God is even fighting against us, can bring us to a place of awakening where those things that we were alive to, that were holding back that love that would immediately respond to the Father is undone. And then we will receive a relationship breakthrough with God. Are we going to be those in this day and hour that are going to rise up and be as God calls us to be in Isaiah 60, where it says, gross darkness shall cover the people's. And the Lord says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of God has risen upon thee. It is when we choose to arise in the midst of great tribulation and darkness and be who God has called us to be. The question is, are we going to be the ten wise virgins or the ten foolish virgins? It is fine to go to your charismatic church or your Pentecostal church or whatever church you are attending. And there you have your prayer meetings and there you experience the presence of God. But if you become satisfied and comfortable and not open to the full counsel of God, are you in that place of becoming the bride? the bride of Christ. God is calling his people to come forth and be his bride, to not limit him, to not allow the spirit of denominationalism that is divisive. We read the Apostle Paul bringing this out, In Corinthians, where he says God bestows more abundant honor on the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means that when there is truly repentance from not allowing the headship of Christ to fully inhabit the body. When there is that repentance and the headship of Christ is allowed to inhabit the body because leadership repents of control and allows Christ to be had, and become sensitive to the head. And when they allow the body of Christ to become a house of prayer, his glory will come down in fullness, and he will give more abundant honor unto those that are insignificant in the midst of the congregation. Because the tendency is, in human nature, to look up to those that are charismatic, and that are in the natural attractive. And this brings with it pride. And it says in Proverbs that contention comes by pride. And so how how God undoes pride is when he puts more abundant honor on the parts that are more lacking. So the mountains are brought down, the tendency for those to be looked up to too highly, and the valleys are raised, and as the word of God says, then all flesh shall see the glory of God. And that is what God's intention and plan is for this hour. It is that his people, when they come together in meetings, would be on their faces before God and utter reverence and awe of his holiness. That they would repent of not having the fear of God and that the fear of God would come back into the body of Christ. So that we know what it is to be still and know he is God. We know what it is to have brokenness before him and humility and tears before him. And out of that will come forth great joy For those that sow in tears shall reap in joy, great liberty, and worship in the spirit, where the glory of God, the headship of Christ, can fully come down and inhabit the body. But if we continue to be like Sodom and Gomorrah in certain principles, namely this, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. How many in the body of Christ How many in leadership, by talking about sports and all of these things, are promoting ungodliness, encouraging people in a direction away from God because those are the very idols that are keeping them from a life of prayer and intimacy with God. And therefore, they will not be prepared for the time of great tribulation, which is coming upon the earth. So God is calling his people forth. to be those that will not give up like Mahalan and be worn out and lose their destiny and purpose, but will enter the place of destiny in their community, in their city, in their nation. How do we turn a nation back to God? By bringing the government of God down to earth from heaven. And that happens When we allow the full headship of his presence by repenting of control, by repenting of the things that limit God, that allow us to have our own comfort zone. When leadership fully facilitates the body so that it can function, and when they start the meetings out of the fear of God and repent of the gods of amusement, of idleness, of materialism and these things that put us into a state of sleep, we will conquer our community and nation because the presence of God will go forth to draw people, even without us trying to go out and speak to them, will draw them actually in to the meetings like happened in the history with the Welsh revival, like happened in the Azusa Street revival and many other powerful outpourings of the Spirit of God. Nowadays we have mostly people calling and talking about revival and it's all counterfeit. There's no humility, there's no genuine fear of God, there's no genuine repentance. But we are living in an hour when God is calling us to take our nations, to take the nations, and it will happen When we come into that new order, which is not the order of man, but the order of God, which involves repenting of not allowing his headship to fully inhabit the body, repenting of not allowing his house to be a house of prayer, and repenting of the idols of our modern world coming into a place where we learn to be so baptized in the fullness of this love that we truly, as it were, wash one another's feet with the word of God. It is time for the loves of the world to go. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which is not of God, but is of the world. But he that does the will of God abides forever. This is the message that God is saying to the body of Christ He is calling us to come forth now in our local assemblies into his headship into becoming his temple his habitation of glory his house of prayer heed the call today and recognize the urgency of the hour we're in we only need to look and what is going on. Where wickedness is in high places. With sexual perversion. Flaunting itself in the face of God. And then we wonder why there are prophets. Like Henry Gruber. Which you can see on my website. A man that has literally laid down his life. Before terrorists and been delivered. Time and time again. Who is very prophetic. And others. Have foretold of a time of serious judgment. Need I say, will it surprise you if such judgments come when wickedness is allowed in high places because the body of Christ has not repented? The word of God says of my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I heal their land. Yes, we read in Revelations 18, of the destruction of the world system, that it is burned by fire by the other system in the world and ushers in the Antichrist world system. Will we be in the first resurrection? Will we be in the marriage supper of the Lamb? Will we be the ten wise virgins or the ten foolish virgins that have just enough oil in their lamps? They're satisfied with meetings and God's presence and prayer meetings, but they're not open to the full counsel of God. They limit God with their denominations and their divisive mindset. God is calling his people forth to be his bride, and he's asking you in your church to do what is necessary to bring down the fullness of his headship in your body the fullness of the baptism of this love. This is the time for the last end time outpouring of the Spirit of God that will restore all things before his coming. Will you heed the call? The Spirit is saying, Awake thou that sleepest arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light. It is time to respond, O sleeping giant, and to rise up out of your sleep and to take your position of destiny for the everlasting government of God that will come after the destruction of all things that are corrupt in government are dealt with by the kingdom of God through the body of Christ. Thank you for listening to this message.